Our Father, that's why we've come. We've come to worship. An activity that we find so uh, perhaps difficult at times. We know how to bargain. We know how to buy and sell. We know how to dialogue. We know how to uh, to build a, a neighborhood. We, we know how to teach. We know how to sell. But Father, to worship we find we find difficult. We spend so much of our week devoted to making life work. And then we come to this hour where we are no longer the, the, the mover, the shaker. We're the one who has come to bow down before the God who made us and redeemed us. We've come to worship you. And we pray that your Holy Spirit will occupy our efforts, that he will fuel our, our determination, that he will make minds that are receptive to what is said and sung and prayed. And then we might leave here a bit more like the Savior than when we came. We've come, oh God, not to waste an hour in religious stuff, We've come not even to go to church. We've come to engage in that performance that is being observed by a celestial audience. There is the one whose eyes are too holy to even look upon iniquity that now fixes his attention upon his worshiping people and so aid us in our so doing. When we're finished, O oh God, our desire is that you would take delight in what you've seen and what you've heard. Lord, uh, we do understand that every week a new set of issues arise for various families. There is probably a pain in every pew. There is probably concern and burden and heartache in every pew, oh God. And, and if we knew it all, we would probably be all so full of despair. And yet, Father, we long to think that something that goes on here today will lighten a load. That will remind people of who they are and whose they are. That you have not forsaken us. That you are not punishing us, but you are doing some very painful surgery. That you are authoring things in our lives to, to draw us and, and, and woo us more closely to your side to cull away all that is unimportant so that we can spend our lives doing things that will last for an eternity. Father, tomorrow morning we got to go make a living. But we won't do that for an eternity. What we will do is worship you. And so, Father, uh, might the burdens be lifted, the hearts be made less heavy, the minds be made less cluttered, as we fix our attention on the, on the thrice holy one. And now, Father, we thank you for the privilege of giving. The privilege is ours, Father. We've got a lot. We are well-dressed, well-clothed, well-housed. And we want to learn what it means to sacrifice. Not to give 10%, but to sacrifice. Whatever that means for each individual. To say no to the flesh so that we can give more for the advancement of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And of course, we pray in his name. Amen. Thank you. 
Now, would you look at Psalm 8 with me and um, let me read you the entirety of that psalm. It's only nine verses. And then, as I said, one verse out of uh, Genesis chapter 1. So you're going to have to kind of bounce around in both texts uh, this morning. So you follow as I read nine verses, uh, the entirety of Psalm 9. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have ordained strength because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels and have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the fields, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the sea. O oh Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. And then to Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our own image, in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God endures forever. As some of you may recall, uh, last week I began a construction project. And the construction project had to do with the building of a biblical definition for self-worth. And undeniably, ladies and gentlemen, the first phase of that building project, the the, the foundation, uh, if you will, is learning what it will take to deal with guilt, real guilt, my guilt, my guilt that is uh, uh, associated with my sin. The the first part of building a biblical sense of of self-worth, I've got to figure out how guilt is dealt with. And the way that God did that was to design a salvation where sin was not ignored, it wasn't swept under some celestial carpet. No, no. Sin and the guilt associated with it was completely addressed, completely paid for in the death of Jesus Christ. And, and the benefits of Christ and his work are offered freely to all who believe. You know, gang, theologians have labored for centuries trying to make sure that the church accurately understood that wonderful truth, and then they packaged the whole truth under the heading of justification by faith. I said last week that the heart of a biblical self-worth is a grasp of the beauties contained in that doctrine. Rightly understood and enjoyed, guilt is something that ought to be swept aside and trouble us no more. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said that for a Christian, guilt is an idol. (laughs) Now, gang, 
That's what we looked at last week. The construction project has begun, and the foundation laid, and the foundation is addressing guilt via the grand provisions made for us via the completed work of Christ, and all of that is discussed under the heading of the doctrine of justification by faith. But this morning, we are going to do something different. We move on to address the issue of shame. Now, gang, remember, guilt has to do with my location morally. That is, concerning the moral universe, guilt is a barometer of where I stand before God. The opposite of guilt is innocence. And as I said, justification by faith assures us that those who believe in Christ are not guilty. My relationship to God has been restored by the removal of my sin and its guilt, made possible, of course, by the finished work of Christ. But shame? Shame has to do not with my failings before God. Shame has to do with my failings before me and others who are important to me. Shame has to do with my location in my social world. Guilt has to do with my location in my moral world. Shame has to do with my location in the social world. The opposite of shame is dignity. It's honor. It's glory. It's value. And and how am I supposed to have that when I don't even like who I am and what I've done? Or, or maybe, maybe I, I have such shame because my father thinks I'm a zero. Or my mother is so disappointed in me that she can hardly look at me. Or, or the crowd that's important to me ranks me pretty low. You know, uh, when, I, when I was writing all this, um, I, I, I remembered a, a, something that happened last March while we were in the Czech Republic. Brent and Becky Wilkins were with Susie and me in the Czech Republic. And... And I had been invited to, to speak at this university campus in this enchanting little city uh, called Herodot's Kralova. Uh, it means the castle of the queen. Well, it's a, an enchanting little place. And we went to the university campus, went to a dorm, and they took me up to this room. And crammed in there was about 40 university students. And I spoke to them. And after the hour was finished, they, they, uh, they had some announcements that they wanted to make. And one of the announcements that they made... They made it via a skit. Are you with me? That is, they were going to make the announcement. They were, they were announcing some retreat or something, and they did it via a skit. And I, I swear to you, they probably wrote the dialogue while I was speaking because it was, it was just awful. I mean, it was, it was embarrassing. But this cute little Czech girl and this cute little Czech guy um, had this dialogue that was being translated for me, and they were announcing, again, as I said, a retreat. And, and the dialogue went like this. The girl looked at the guy, and she says, I'm ugly. And no one wants me, and I'm considering suicide. <laughs> I thought, what is this retreat that you're announcing here, you know? Um, I, and I thought, gosh, I guess the needs of people are the same the world over. You know, guys, here was a woman who in this little skit was, was reflecting shame. I'm ugly. And consequently, I have no worth because no one wants me. 
and I might as well die. A woman with no glory, no honor, no dignity, no value, because she sensed a dislocation in her social world. I don't like who I am, and I don't like what I've done. Now, how does the Bible address that? What does the Bible have to say about the absence of value in my own eyes? The primary way that the Bible addresses that issue is through this thing, another Latin term, that is called the Imago Dei. We're going to discuss it this morning. Gang, um, in our text, in Psalm 8, the psalmist asks a philosophical question. In, um, in verse 4, he asks, what is man? By the way, he, he asks that again in Psalm 144. Job also asks it in, in his book, uh, in chapter 7. And 21st century secular man is still asking it with a fair degree of frequency. What is man? Now, the, the main answer to that question that 21st century secular man has come up with is this. Are you with me? In answer to that question, what is man? Here's what our culture, here's how our culture replies. It says, you're an accident. Uh, you're the strange combination of time plus chance plus methane gas. You're a blob of protoplasm. You're the, the accidental collocation of atoms. You're a naked ape. You're a sophisticated monkey. You're the fittest that survived. Now, my friend, if you believe that, if that is what you believe, then first of all, let me tell you, do you see how inconsistent you're going to be if you condemn Adolf Hitler? Because, ladies and gentlemen, Adolf Hitler was simply trying to eliminate some of the, the weaker links in the evolutionary chain. Germany was told that Jews were rodents. And they were just doing the world a favor by getting rid of them. Ideas have consequences, ladies and gentlemen. And um, the consequences of that position cost six million Jews their lives. That position that I'm an accident, that I'm a blob of protoplasm. Gang, well, let me tell you another one of the, the consequences of believing that. It is, it is a remarkable thing to me. If you, will, if you will engage me for the next 90 seconds, it is a remarkable thing to me. An incredible, an incredible contradiction within the, the mind of secular man is that he is teaching that the solution for all of society's ills is a high self-esteem. Uh, governments are spending tax dollars trying to produce it. Educators are changing the way they educate to try and produce it. Parents are adjusting the way they parent 
Because we're being told that the best thing that we can do for our people is to raise their self-esteem. Go out and build a high self-esteem at all costs. At the same time, that modern thinker uh, takes me to his science lab and tells me that I'm nothing more than a blob of protoplasm that got lucky. Now, guys, I have a cartoon for you, and it's not intended to be funny. It's intended to help illustrate my point. Richard, would you flash that thing up there? Um, there's, here's the first frame. Uh, the little girl is walking. She's at school with one of her friends, and she says, You look depressed. What happened in your last class? Well, today I learned that we are nothing special, just animals, little more than highly evolved apes, the result of a giant cosmic abs accident. Next frame. What are you learning in your next class? Self-esteem. Ladies and gentlemen, do you see that? Do you see that contradiction? I'm telling you, many of you walked in here believing both of those things. You walked in here believing that, first of all, the solution to society's ills is a high self-esteem. But you also believe that you're nothing more than a blob of protoplasm. The combination of time, chance, and methane gas. Gang, the conclusions that you must come to if you believe such a thing as evolutionary science are dictated to you. They are inevitable and they will lead you ultimately to despair. And I, I'll say this to you. The honest, the honest secular philosophers know that to be so and that's what they're teaching. They are teaching that you have little more, little, little more value than a rock. So why not go out and take your own life? Why, why, why do you plead for social justice for anybody? What, what, why social justice? Why not go out and engage in genocide? Because, ladies and gentlemen, if you are committed to the highly fallible theory that you evolved from some piece of protoplasm, then social justice is a joke. And Hitler probably did do us a favor. Who knows? But I'm told that man is nothing more than an accident, but this accident is supposed to go out and build a high self-esteem. Do you see what a contradiction that is? Now, is there another answer to David's question? What is man? Oh, boy, you bet there is. But I want you to know there's only one. There's either that one or this one. There's, e there's either modern secular thought or there's David's or there's the biblical reply. Um, you know, it's a shame that more of us aren't astronomers. Um, I guess the, the best we can do here at Grace Van is Joy Selipak, who is a weatherman. That's pretty close. But my, my, my point is, do you notice what David is doing in Psalm 8? 
He says, when I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, the, the, um, that which you have ordained, what is man? David is outside one night, and he's looking at this clear sky, and he sees all of these heavenly bodies, and he, he looks at this stuff, and it, and it produces in him a certain awe, a certain humility. And in response to looking at all that, you know, astronomy has a way of doing that to you. You find out just how small you are. But in response to looking at all that, he, he steps back and he says, What is man? What is man that thou art mindful of him? And the son of man that you visit him? And I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, the answer to that question is found in this doctrine called the Imago Dei, which is mentioned in Genesis chapter 1. Go there with me, if you will. Genesis chapter 1. Now, now you know what Genesis 1 is, don't you? Uh, Genesis 1 is the creation story. That is, when God created the heavens and the earth, and, and uh, you know, day 1, day 2, day 3, day 4, that, that thing. That's what Genesis 1 is. Well, guys, all of creation, that is, all of God's creative um, work, up to this point, up to verse 26, has been nothing more than a prelude to what would happen at the end of day six. This is where we are at the end of day six in 126, Genesis 126. And this is what we find. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Now, guys, the importance of what is going on here in 126, the the, the uniqueness, the profundity of what's happening here can be seen in how this event is being introduced. Did you notice, well, I probably didn't notice because we didn't read the whole chapter, but there is a significant change in the language that occurs in verse 26. Verse 26 starts normally. It starts like this. Then God said. But suddenly, at that point, there is a major shift in the language. Up to this point... Every occurrence of a then God said has been followed with words like let there be or let the earth bring forth, let the waters uh, abound, or etc., etc. It's all language of fiat, let it be. But never before has God said, let us make anything. Do you see the difference in the language? Because, ladies and gentlemen... For the first time, we find the expression, then God said, followed by personal pronouns. Let us make man in our image. That is, the Bible deliberately uses personal pronouns to show you that something incredibly different is going on here. This is not creation per usual. This is something different. Because what's being established here is a personal relationship between God and man 
that doesn't exist with any other aspect of his creation. It doesn't exist with light or water or moons or stars or animals or plants or rocks or mountains or valleys or streams or anything else. Only here do you find God saying that he is going to enter into something personal with what he's creating at this point. And of course, as you know, he's creating Adam. He has no personal relationship with anything else in his creation except Adam. Ladies and gentlemen, listen. Carrots are not made in God's image. Neither is a golden retriever. The other works of creation, it seems to imply, were no real challenge to his, to his creative energy. But when he comes to make man, what you get is almost this all hands on deck. Because what I'm about to do now is so vastly profound. It is so uniquely valuable that every member of the Trinity is called in to engage and participate in this creation of something brand new. Compared to the rest of creation, ladies and gentlemen, this is going to be spectacular. This is going to be something special. Man is built to image God's glory in a way that nothing else does. All of the creation, to some degree, reflects his glory. But not like Adam. Adam is the crown of creation. And by the way, ladies and gentlemen, one man likened this difference. And if you don't know what difference I'm talking about. The difference between how man reflects his glory and how the rest of creation reflects his He says the difference is like this. It's the difference in looking at yourself in a pool of water and looking at yourself in a mirror. You know, if you look at yourself in a pool of water, you see a decent reflection. But if you look at yourself in a mirror, you get almost an exact representation. Man is a mirror of God's glory. Everything else is a pool. The fullest ability to reflect God's glory is man. It's you and me, ladies and gentlemen, that are most able to image the glory of God. Man is an image like us, says God. You know, man was, was made on the same day with animals. He was made out of the same dust as animals. He feeds much like an animal. He reproduces in a similar way. But he possesses something that no animal shares. He is crowned. He's crowned with glory and honor. He's one step shy of an angel. Nothing else in creation rivals you. And as if to underscore the difference between man and the rest of the creation, he turns and gives dominion over the entire creation to man. 
God ravishes us with his, with his admiration by giving us care of the whole created order. Not only is man pictured as being in nature, he is portrayed as being over it. He is a king to whom was given an empire. He is given a whole world to meet his needs. You know, animals, as, as glorious as they are, ladies and gentlemen, not only does Adam name them, he eats them. They become his food. Because nothing, nothing compares to the valley. That God has built into Adam. What is man? One commentarian said, we're the only ones in the universe sitting around asking, what is man? Humans are the only ones asking, what is human? Dogs don't ask, what is dog? What is man? That you are mindful of him, O God. I'll tell you what he is. He's an image bearer. He is stamped with God's glory. He is the Imago Dei. Now, what does that have to do with my present series on building self-worth? Boatloads, ladies and gentlemen, boatloads. First of all, let me clear away a couple of things. First of all, suicide. Oh my goodness. How one, how, you would be, you would be attacking the image of God. Capital punishment. Yeah. The Bible defends it, promotes it in Genesis chapter 9 and the reason given. Because if you murder, you have attacked the image of God. Racism. Oh my goodness, brother and sister. The idea that one race is superior to any other race and, and that the others might be inferior to the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. Do you know that that's a direct assault on Genesis 1.26? My friend, racist tendencies are the result of not understanding that you, we are all stamped. The image of God, whether I'm black, white, pink, or green. Shame? Guys, no matter how low you may rank yourself uh, in your social world and how inferior you might feel and, and how much you might have disappointed your daddy... Bible places upon you an incomparable value, a value that is rooted in an undeniable, unmovable, unchangeable, unshakable truth. You are the image of God. You know, the same people who taught you that you're a biological accident 
and send you out into the world to build your high self-esteem. Says, oh, and by the way, <laughs> you're, you, uh, you're nothing but a blob of protoplasm that got lucky. Guys, because the secular world has no objective basis for their self-worth, 21st century secular man has created bases, things like uh, beauty or money or skill or intelligence. And any time you build your worth on something other than your identity in Christ, you're going to be living on the fragile edge of insecurity and anxiety for the rest of your life. Why? Because all of that other stuff, ladies and gentlemen, can be taken away from you. You can lose your money. You can lose your beauty. You can lose your skill. And then, tell me, who are you then? My friends, if you define your value as that of being a mom or or having money, or being outstanding in your field. And then something happens that that is taken away from you. Then who are you? Athanasius, which is the name that's familiar to some of you, Athanasius said this, Turning away from God in the hope of finding a different source of identity results not in becoming our own creations, but in becoming nothing. Turning away from God, trying to find another source of identity, doesn't result in you and I becoming our own creations. It results in we becoming nothing. Again, you're never, you're, you'll never have value because you tell yourself you have value. There's too much flaw in each of us. What we do have, however, that is so much better than me telling me how wonderful I am. What we have is a statement from God. I made you. And I made you in my image. And you Above all other created things, reflect my glory like nothing else. And to you, and to you only, have I given dominion over the whole created order. Gang, have you ever heard of the anthropic principle? If you want to find it, all you got to do is type it in a Google search and there are 33,000 entries. It's plenty for everybody. The anthropic principle, it's a scientific principle that states that basically the fundamental constants of physics and chemistry are just right or they are finely tuned to allow human life on this planet. Uh, things like the magnetic field, Things like the, um, the density of the proton and neutron compared to the electron, uh, the, the distance between the sun and the moon, the, the, the molecular structure of water. All of these things, ladies and gentlemen, were they different, would disallow 
human life from existing on this planet. You know what? It is almost as if somebody designed this whole thing so that we could live on it. That's exactly what happened. This whole thing is designed so that image bearers like you could spend your life reflecting his glory. And if that weren't enough, He sends his only begotten son to die for our sin. And though he doesn't sanction or approve of our sin, he does not allow our sin to prevent him from loving us. We ought to all be walking out these doors saying, what is me? mindful of me. Guilt? Not after the work of Christ. Shame? How utterly unthinkable. Our Father, I do pray that you would uh, encourage your people that they might be reminded of the great place that they play in the cosmic drama that you have um, that you have built in us that which is um, unshakable, an objective basis for our worth, that we above all are people with glory and honor and dignity and value, so much so that you entrusted to our care this whole created order. Father, for my brother and sister who come into this room not really liking who they are or what they've done, I pray pray that you will show them their dignity. Show them their value. Value not because they're beautiful, not because they're rich, not because they're intelligent, not because they're skilled, but value because they bear the image of their creator. Send them out of here, O God, with heads held high, not in godless pride, but in a sense of everlasting worth that is unshakable. I thank you, Father, for the privilege that is mine to get to tell people about this. And for the thrill it is, perhaps to point people for the first time to the thing that defines who we are as man. Father, if you've led people here who have not yet met Jesus Christ, might they see that it is sin that has marred the image, but it is Christ who restores the beauty. We thank you for him and pray, of course, in his name.
Amen.